Welcome to the Prodigy Maker Show with Chris Lewitt. Chris Lewitt is an internationally recognized high-performance coach, educator, and author of two best-selling books, The Tennis Technique Bible and The Secrets of Spanish Tennis. Tune in weekly as Chris answers questions live from around the world and discusses topics in junior development, technical and tactical training, Spanish tennis methods and philosophies, and more. The Prodigy Maker Show is primarily focused on high-performance junior training and how to help children maximize their potential. The program features intelligent insight from Chris and debate from leaders in the high-performance industry. The show can be watched live on Chris's Facebook profile, and video versions of the show are archived at youtube.com forward slash Chris Lewitt. And now, here's Chris. What's up, amigos? It's Chris. We are live Thursday night, episode 25 of the Prodigy Maker show. It's our big kickser show and academy show. We're going to talk about academies and homeschooling. I think I'm going to do academies and homeschooling first. Guess who came to say hello? Hello, Sammy. Hello. How are you? The star of the show. There he is. He, like, knows when the show starts now, and he, he actually gets up out of his bed and comes over to, like, help me out. What do you want? You want to rest now? Okay. He wants his nap. He wants to go nap by his bed. I'm going to take him over there. Hold on a second, guys. Okay. Go, Sammy. Go. All right, I'll let him do that. All right, we're back. So tonight is going to be the big kick surf show, but I want to do the academy talk and the homeschooling talk because I promised some viewers that we would do that from last week. So let's talk about academies. And I'm worried that the academy talk is going to take over the whole show. So if that happens, I guess... We could do the kick serve another time. If you guys have kick serve questions, you can hit me with them. And I love teaching the kick serve. And I think I have a very high level of expertise in the kick serve. I've been teaching that serve for a long time now with many successful cases. You know, lots of experience working with a kick serve with young kids, very young, as young as maybe seven, eight, nine. All the way up to, I have some adults, some parents wanted to learn it. They saw their kids learning it and they wanted me to teach it to them. I think it's a serve that so many people are dying to learn. And some people have spent their whole life struggling to learn a good kick serve. I myself went through that struggle and it took me a long time to learn a great kick serve. I think I mastered it in the end. But even through college, I was mostly hitting a hard slice. I had a lot of trouble getting the kicker to jump up. And then... I hooked up with my mentor, Gilad Bloom, and Gilad taught me the kick serve. I can still remember the, the first lesson that he did with me back in the day. And he was a lefty, but he was showing me how to get that kick to jump. And he, he went over some details that I was missing, and he was able to crack the code with me. So I was very fortunate about that. Guys, thank you all for tuning in. I appreciate the waves and the thumbs up. So... Let's dig into the Academy talk. And how many of you have followed Robert Lansdorp and how he describes academies? He, he speaks about academies in a very derogatory way. And he says that, you know, he implies that, or he says directly that, you know, coaches, private coaches are what develop players, are who develop players. And academies 
don't really do real development. That's sort of an angle that he talks about a lot. And I disagree with that. I think that academies do a very good job in some ways of developing players and in some ways they don't do a good job. And I could probably say the same thing for private coaches. But when it comes to academies, if you guys have academy questions, please let me know. I know some parents are going to watch this on iTunes or they're going to watch the YouTube show or listen to this on iTunes. They, they told me they couldn't watch the show live, but I know they have a lot of questions about academies. What's the right academy for their kid or, or also homeschooling. If you have a homeschooling question, I get those questions a lot as a high-performance coach. I have many conversations with parents about what is the right academy, what is the right, when should we homeschool, what's the best fit, what should I look for, what are the pitfalls, what are the positives and negatives. So... That's a very common uh, discussion that I have with many, many, many parents. So if you have questions about that, please hit me up with those questions. I'll be happy to answer. That's what this show is all about. I love to talk about different topics in junior development and high performance, but I also just enjoy helping other folks from around the world and answering your questions. You can have access to a top junior developer, and we can talk high performance and and hopefully I can help some kids and families along the way. So basically three subjects open for discussion. And if you have another question on another topic, just let me know and I'll be happy to answer. So I was talking about Robert Lansdorp and his sort of take on academies. And I think that's a very common perspective that you hear mainly from private coaches, maybe because they want to sell you private lessons. I myself am sort of straddling the middle because I have a summer academy, but I'm a year-round private high-performance coach, a consulting coach, and a coach for hire. So I have some students that I work with privately year-round, and I have an, a, an, a summer academy where players come and do uh, do a traditional academy training. You know, they sleep over and they they train Monday through Friday and play tournaments on the weekend, things like that. So academies. I believe that academies definitely develop players. I think you have to be very careful about who you send to an academy. So some, some pitfalls. One, one thing, you should never, I think you should rarely, if ever, just send your kid away to an academy. So I counsel parents about that all the time. Is You have to be really careful in who you trust, which academy you trust, and who's going to be working with your kid. So that that is a big thing. Don't just ship your kid off to an academy, especially a summer camp. Please don't do that either, unless you just want some babysitting for your kids. And I know there are some academies that specialize in that. Some kids who who that's who some families that's that's all they want. They just want they sort of want to let their kid go. Unfortunately, that's kind of a cynical look on it, but it's true. They sort of just let their kid go to an academy because they don't want them in their hair. You know, they don't want their kid or kids around that much. It's kind of like sending them off to boarding school or military school or whatever. So that's not what I'm talking about. If you want to do that, go right ahead. That's not my angle, and I don't, I don't really care too much about that. If you want to ship your kids away and... And that's their life. I've seen a lot of those kids at academies and have been too impressed with their character development. What I'm talking about is when families want to take 
their player to the next level and they're looking for an academy. They're looking to step up their training. And I think there are, there are many places that are really good for that. I think the most important thing is you have a connection with one of the primary coaches who will be working with your kid and that you, you make sure that when the, your player is at the academy that, that they're getting personal attention and they're not getting sort of swept under the rug or, or, or they don't fall between the cracks, which is very common at large academies. So in general, I, I like smaller academies where the kids are, are well known and they get a lot of personal attention and you got to know who is going to be working with your kid. Don't just ship your kid off to work with the team and they're just going to get bounced around uh, with different coaches on the staff. You have to make sure you know who is working with your kid. So especially in summertime, when you send your kid off to a summer academy or a summer camp, can be really dangerous because most academies, first of all, I would like to say that most academies are not really good businesses. They're, they're not a good business. So a lot of them are struggling for money. A lot of them are... Maybe they're breaking even, maybe they're making a small profit, but they're not doing that great. And a lot of academies go under. You know, there's been many, many academies that have gone under, uh, have gone bankrupt or closed shop in the last 20, you know, 20, 30 years. And just the idea of an academy is a relatively new phenomenon. The idea that, that there's going to be a congregation of players and, and coaches and trainers in one place, that maybe started with Nick, with Nick Boletari, and there's been an incredible rise of academies. Everyone has an academy now. Now, that's something that I agree with Robert Lansdorp on. Robert Lansdorp talks a lot about how he's just blown away by how many academies there are now, whereas in, I don't know, let's say 70s, before Boletari, I don't know when Boletari started, maybe uh, 80s, late 80s, mid 80s, when Nick got got everything going, you know, there were just, there weren't, every club, every region didn't have an academy like, like they have now. So things have changed a lot and everyone seems to be wanting to start an academy, even though I don't think academies are great businesses by and large, I, with some exception. There, there can be obviously some that are doing better than others. But my point is that because academies, by their nature, are not great businesses on paper, they're just not. They have a lot of overhead. They have a lot of employee costs. They, they have to give out a lot of scholarships to compete. So, even Nick's original academy ran out of money. You know, he admits it. It was a, it was a failure from a business perspective. It was a failure. He had a ton of great players who came out of there, so it was a success that way. But it was a, a failure in terms of a business. I mean, that's the greatest academy, most famous academy in the world, and they failed. You know, academy's not a good business. So, you have to understand that in a, in a summer, in, in summertime, academies, that's where they, they try to make up and pay for some of the scholarship kids. So, if you're sending your kid there for a month or two months or summertime, even a few weeks, you got to be really careful that you're you're not getting in a situation where there's a ton of kids and your player just sort of is a, a number or name in the crowd, and you have to make sure that the summertime camp is 
is, is the same type of training that you would get for if you're an annual or a year-round kid, right? So, looks like we may have a question on the board here. Charles, you have a question for me about academies? It's my, one of my students, a family that I work with in Texas, Charles Sai. Charles, let me know if you have a question. I'll be happy to answer about academies. I have discussed academy training with so many families and especially summer academy training. So getting back, I'll, I'll go over summer and then we'll talk about the academies maybe an, annually, year-round. So in, in summer, just to continue my thought, the, the academies are not good businesses, so they're trying to make more money in the summer. So what they do is, how do you, how do you make more money? You, you bring in more numbers, you put more players on the court than normal, and you try to reduce your expenses by hiring cheap labor. And so if you're a parent, I just want you to understand the business model and to be a savvy consumer to be careful to to be aware that that this this is a common practice in the academy business a very bad business have i mentioned that <laughs> it's just not a good business to run an academy most of the time so so if you're looking for summertime training you have to be really careful and find a place that doesn't try to bulk up too much where they're going to lose their quality, they're going to have watered-down training, they're going to have temporary interim staff, you know, part-time part or full-time seasonal staff. That, that's not what you want. You want to work with the regular trainers who are there year-round, who have the most experience. You want to work with the top coaches that they have at the academy. Most of the time, your kid will never get a, a whiff of uh, a, a, a moment with the, with the best coach there because the best coach is usually working with the best players or the best coach may be traveling in the summer. A lot of the top staff at an academy take their breaks in the summer. So you have to be really cautious and really careful about summertime uh, training and summer, summer academy setups. So I would just caution you on that if you're looking for summer training. Let's talk about year-round training, for example. I like to find academies that are smaller with a very well-defined team, a team of coaches who have been there a long time. They don't have a lot of turnover. And the coaches, the coaches spend, uh, they really dedicate themselves to each player. So I like the slogan, one player, one project, which is uh, from a Spanish academy, BTT, for example, which is an excellent academy in Barcelona. I'm familiar with so many Spanish academies, so that's part of my frame of reference. I've visited many academies in the U.S. as well, but BTT says one player, one project. And I like that because you want your kid to be special. You want your kid to have the attention of the team and usually to have one coach, one main coach, one primary coach who is responsible for them, someone you know well, you can communicate with, and who you can trust. The annual program is usually much higher quality than summertime programs at an academy. So... Depending on when you go to visit, you have to be have to understand that. Be careful. In in the winter time during the year, the training is is usually the highest quality because they have the best players and the best staff on site, and everyone's in sync and everyone's pretty much well known. Most of the players are well known. Maybe they've been there for years, 
and and so everything is really well organized and flowing smoothly and there's a great momentum that can build the summer is much more haphazard much more chaotic you have players coming in short term you have some players hanging around you have coaches taking vacation you have a lot of distractions in the summer you have big numbers uh many many players uh, many many players who are um overwhelming the staff and the courts and so the chaos of the summer can be really problematic in terms of getting high quality training so academies do academies develop players i believe they absolutely do have this debate a lot with other coaches some coaches think that the private coach is the only one developing a player that is not true a private coach usually starts with the player from the beginning working on technique and and fundamentals and things like that and then as the player gets older and they're more well formed they can move on to an academy setting where they need more competition they need um, better physical training they need the convenience of having everything in one place and they can use that as a jumping off point to a, a higher level of of competition of, of being a maybe going on the ITF circuit or or playing national more nationals or or turning pro. So for me academies are very good at working with transitional players who are older, probably not as good at working with younger players who need more personal and technical development. And so as a general rule, I would say if you have a a young child, you should probably shy away from academies and find a good private coach, a personal coach for your child to be a great mentor. and to develop your child. If your player is more well formed, uh, older, not the age is not as important as how well developed they are technically, how complete their game is. Then it academies start to make a lot more sense because they save costs unless you're going to a very expensive academy like IMG or Rafa Nadal Academy which where the costs are are astronomical now you know it over 50 or 60,000 a year and sometimes more in in some special programs so th- these are very very expensive propositions but you you want to find uh you you as your player gets more and more well formed academies start to make uh, a lot better sense to save money you can find a lot of inexpensive academies in in Spain for example and different parts of the world and you can share costs with other players that's what that's why academies exist Emilio Sanchez talks about that a lot is the whole reason academies exist the raison d'etre is that academ- academies are they will share costs so you can get a good coach and good training at a lower cost than if you just had a coach one on one so charles had a a question on academies and i'll be happy to field those questions now I feel like the academy discussion could branch into so many different directions because it's hard to generalize because every family, every player situation is different. And if you have a specific personal situation about academies, please reach out to me and I'd be happy to to help you um navigate the difficult terrain when looking for academies and I'll be happy to sort of guide you as best I can. I I do a lot of that with parents. Charles says, "Have you sent academies where the better players are separated out from the less talented stepchildren players?" Yeah, so again, you have to understand the business model of academies. 
The way it works, generally, is academies need to have star players to bring in the lesser-ranked players and the paying players. So what they do is they, they, give, they give out a lot of free money. They give scholarships to talented kids, highly-ranked kids, and they have to make up that somehow by charging full price to the less talented kids, the less highly ranked kids. That's just how they work. That's how almost all of them work. Very hard to run an academy that doesn't work like that. I know some academy operators who try to run uh, a, an operation where they don't give out any scholarships, and I think it's usually a, a losing proposition. makes for a very bad academy. Uh, very tough to run a business like that because you're constantly having players cherry-picked, and it's hard to build up a, a competitive cluster of players at, at, at your academy if you don't give out scholarships. So you have to understand that the best players are going to get special treatment. The kids that aren't paying, it doesn't seem fair, and it isn't fair. It's sort of backwards. It's sort of tipped on its head. You know, everything that's right side up is upside down. Because the ones who aren't paying get the most attention usually from everyone, from the staff, from the director, from the trainers, from, from the, the, the best coaches at the academy. And the kids who are paying full, they, they usually don't receive as much personal attention. They're, sometimes, in, in many cases, they, they're not taken seriously. You know, it's seen as expensive babysitting for those kids. So... You've got to really watch out for the environment that you choose and make sure that if your child is not one of those special, highly ranked ones, then I wouldn't send them there. And you have to make sure they get the attention they need or, or, or I wouldn't send them there. It's too risky. You know, it's, it's human nature for the, the coaches to get excited and enthusiastic about working with the most talented kids who might have a chance to turn pro, the ones who they'll make their name with. It's very hard to find top coaches, elite coaches, who will take seriously players who are not that gifted. I am one of those coaches. I work with a lot of kids that run the gamut from extremely talented future pros and you know, top college players to less talented young ones. And I try to give a professional training to, to every child because I just have a personal that's part of my character. That's a personal value that I hold to. But in my experience, most coaches who are quote-unquote elite or high-level or high-performance, between you and me, sort of like, sort of whisper, wink, wink, they don't, take, they don't care that much about the kids who are, are, are not going places. You know, they want to sort of hitch their wagon to a star, unfortunately, or it's just, the, it's just human nature. So... It's a rare find to, to get a coach who is really serious and into high performance who will take on a less gifted player. And I think at academies, it's even more so like that. It goes for the same in, in the private setting. All right, hope that helped, Charles. Let me know if you have a follow-up or a further question about academies. Like I said, the academy discussion is really fascinating. I, I would love to go at it from different angles, but... A lot of it's specific to your family and player situation, so a lot of it's situational, and I'll be happy to field questions on that. I see my buddy Jeremy Malfay is waving. Thanks, Jeremy, for tuning in. Brian Boland, big name in coaching, is waving. Thanks for the wave. I appreciate it. Tim Treat's also waving. Thank you, guys. I'm 
trying not to give too many shout outs because on the podcast it doesn't work so well. On Facebook Live it's fantastic. So uh, sorry if I don't shout out to you guys as much as I used to. Last year we did a ton of shout outs, but I want you to know if I don't shout out to you guys, I do appreciate you supporting the show and tuning in. So should we talk a little bit about homeschooling and if there are any academy questions, you can follow up and let me know. Just finishing up with academies, okay, Lansdorp is sort of right and sort of wrong. He said he's so negative about academies, and there's a lot to be negative about, but academies also do a very good job, so it's a balance. They do a good job with the, a lot of times with the players who aren't paying, <laughs> okay, let's be honest, and they don't do such a great job sometimes with the players who are, who are, are paying fully, who are less talented, but... There are places that take everyone seriously and, and do a good job. Your job as a parent is to try to find those quality organizations, those quality institutions who treat everyone relatively the same. And they give everyone a high-quality training, and each player is, is treated as a project, an important project, whether they're going to be a Division three college player or a professional player. That's really important when looking at academies. So there's, I always remember the story. I, I traveled to all the academies in Spain while I was researching my book, The Secrets of Spanish Tennis. And there's one academy in Valencia. It's now closed, by the way, because I did. I mentioned that academies are not good businesses. So it's closed shop and then it's reopened now. But it used to be called Altor and Alvarino. Tennis Academy, or the Academy, Academy, Academia Altor and Alvarino. And Pancho Alvarino is a legendary coach in the Valencia area. He used to work with the girls, and Jose Altor worked with the boys. And I, I know Jose, I usually go visit there. It's now called Altor and Lozano. It's called Lozano Altor now. So they, they reconstituted themselves and they're trying to make a business again. But whoa, it's a tough business, guys. Academy is a tough business. And that's why, that's why it's, it's not good for the people who, want, who are not talented, who, want, who are paying full, because the business is so bad that they're just focused on making up for the scholarship kids most of the time. Yeah, maybe you can. Maybe some of you will disagree with me, but I, I, I think I know the business very well, and I run a summer academy, and so I, I know the pressures of of a camp and academy business. Anyway, so I visited them years ago. It was my first visit, and it was the most amazing thing. They didn't run a summer camp, and that's when I knew that they were hardcore and really serious. They actually didn't run a summer camp. They said, "No, we don't believe in bringing in players short term and selling them." a false dream. We only take players who are going to be with us year-round, and that's how we do it. And Pancho Alvarino and Jose Altor, they, they stood fast to that for many years, and then they went out of business. So, so I don't know. I think there's a couple lessons there. One is that that doesn't work long-term because you can't make money. You, you can't support your business. The, I mean, the business has to be profitable for the academy to thrive. But at the same time, the essence of what they were trying to do, they were trying to focus on a small group of players and give them their best year-round and not bring in the chaos of, of too big a summer camp, not, not to become slaves to growth or slaves to running a big summer camp, which many places are. They're kind of a slave to summer growth, and they just need to get more and more numbers coming in the summer to pay for the scholarship kids who are there year-round. That is... 
that the essence of what they were trying to do was really noble and honorable. So, guys, I'm sorry it didn't work out, but fortunately, Jose Altor is back with Pablo Lozano, and they're running a very professional academy in Valencia. If you're ever in Valencia, they do an excellent job, and they're not very well known. The Altor, Lozano, Lozano Altor, High Performance Academy. A very cool place, small shop, cool place. So, let's talk a little bit about homeschooling. Homeschooling, when is it right? Do you have to homeschool to get to the top of the country, etc., etc.? You know the debate, and the answer is there's not only one way to the top, there's more than one way to do it. I had a mom asking me if her daughter was uh, too young to homeschool. I don't think it's ever, you're ever too young to homeschool. I've talked about that on this program. It depends on what your goals are. It depends on the maturity level of your child. And only, only you know that as a parent. You know your children better than anyone else. I believe parents know their children best. And for some kids, at, even at 7, 8, or 9, it may be appropriate to homeschool and go for the dream. And for other kids, it may be wildly inappropriate to homeschool at that age. So there has to be a certain level of maturity. The goal setting has to be in place. The, the direction and plan for the player has to be there. And you have to have a good setup, with an, usually with an academy. You can do it with a private coach. Like I said, to train with a private coach is going to cost a lot, a lot more than doing than than most academies although some academies now the prices are blowing up I, I can't believe how expensive they are and many of them are, are the reason why the price is going up is because the facilities are getting nicer and nicer the costs are higher and higher and also many of the academies are offering private lesson packages now so it's not just group training you're also paying for private lessons built in but with homeschooling it's always a personal decision. What's the typical pathway? A kid will train until maybe 13 or 14, 7th, 8th, ninth grade, and, and then they'll start looking for an academy or homeschool situation so that they can train more and maybe bump up their, their ranking, try to get to a higher level. At the national stage, in my experience, I have worked with a lot of top national players. I've coached dozens and dozens of players in the top 100 and I've been fortunate enough to coach uh, a bunch of kids who actually made top 10 in the country so I have some experience with some of the highest ones the highest blue chip players developing them and also with scores of players who are a little bit lower ranked between 50 and 100 in the countries and in in my experience what I always tell parents is that you're going to hit a ceiling typically at I estimate around 40 or 50 in the country. If, you don't, if you're not homeschooling or if you're not in some kind of alternate schooling, you're going to hit a ceiling that you can't really break through. And that, those are typically the academy kids. In my experience, those are the kids who are training full-time. They have a minimized schooling setup, and they're just training a lot more. They're, they're doing fitness every day, and they're very tough to beat if you're on a part-time training schedule working around school. There sometimes can be exceptions with extremely gifted athletes, but typically with a good good athlete, maybe not off the charts athlete, you're not going to break higher than I usually say around 40 in the country, maybe maybe between 30 and 60. 
uh, without changing your schooling setup so that you can train more. Uh, specifically, so you can train twice a day. It's very important to train twice a day to get to the top of the country. And the kids who I had who made the highest level in the country who are competing for super nationals and national championships, they're all doing that. In the most rare exception, the most rare occasion, there, there may be a kid who's so talented that he can get to the top of the country, compete for national championships with an after-school program. But I, I think it's, it's um, an aberration. It's, it's not the norm. So that typically a player will move up through the sectional rankings, and if they have a good athleticism, if they're a good, good talent, they can make between 50 and 100 in the country with a part-time program that is a normal school. And they will need to decide at that point, whether it's at 13 or 14 or 15, if they want to sacrifice some of their traditional schooling and to find either a, a, a school, an alternate school. It doesn't have to be online. It, there, there are many good alternate schooling programs. Some, sometimes a public, there are public school systems that offer it. I, I've had, I've had uh, some players, for example, where they're actually in public, they're in a public school, but the public school has an option for athletes and act, actors and things like that. So that can be a really good option, like a middle ground for parents, because some parents want, they want to keep things as normal as possible. They don't like the idea of online schooling, although I'm a big believer in online schooling. I think it's the future, and I don't, I don't really have, a, I don't attach a stigma to online schooling. But sometimes online schooling is not appropriate for some kids, depending on their learning style. And an alternate schooling situation, either at a public or a private school, is an excellent choice. There are also a number of good hybrid schools now for parents. There are online hybrid schools. One of them is Dwight Online, uh, Dwight School Online, which I know very well because I, I, um, one of the owners of the school, I coach his son. And I've also, I've also had some students who've attended there. It's in New York City. It's a really good online school, very high-quality private school. And another one is Stanford Online. That's a really well-known uh, private school option. That is, it's an online school, but it's very high-quality education. Another that is very popular is Laurel Springs. And unfortunately, I've had some bad experiences with Laurel Springs. I've had a number of players who were disappointed with the education they received through Laurel Springs. I know Laurel Springs is trying really hard to improve their educational content and the delivery of their program, and they may have done that, but just in the past, let's say, 10 years or so, I've had a number of players who they weren't really thrilled with the education they, they, they got at the end of the road from Laurel Springs, but uh, maybe they're, they're working on, I know they're working hard to try to change that and up the quality, so you have to check out these programs and see what's the best fit. You basically have a purely online you have a hybrid or private school online, like Dwight School, or uh, or it's it's called Dwight Global, or Stanford Online, and and there's there's more Kaplan, I believe Kaplan. Last I checked, had a a private high school online. So there's some private schools. That, they're quite expensive, actually, between fifteen and thirty thousand dollars a year. They're not cheap uh, for an online school, so you're not getting much of a deal on price. But they're very solid. They're accredited, and they they will be well accepted by all the elite colleges. So those are some online slash hybrid options. 
And then if you're lucky enough to be in a public school district that has a special program for athletes or actors or, or other or singers or you know, uh, kids in, in special situations, many public school districts have that option. Unfortunately, unfortunately, we don't have that. I don't know many schools like that here in New York. Uh, we have another uh, school here in New York, just happens to be for actors and actresses that a number of tennis players use. is called the School uh, Professional Children's School. So it's a private school in New York City, sort of a hybrid, another hybrid option. And I've had a, a number of top-ranked national kids do that school. Also very expensive. I think it's over 30000 a year. Very expensive school. But you get sort of that you know, private school, sort of an elite education, and you get a lot of flexibility, tremendous flexibility to, to plan your tournament schedule and also, uh, you know, flexibility with the teachers. And it's just so convenient for training to have a school that understands what you need as, a, as an athlete, a high-level athlete. It's, it's probably the, the only way to go if you're going to go out on the ITF circuit and travel worldwide to build up your, world, your, your junior world ranking. And if you're going to play a lot of nationals and chase points to get your best national results, it's, it's probably critical too. If you're going to take the approach that some parents do and play a limited national schedule or a very limited international schedule, if you're going to do kind of a Venus and Serena Williams deal where you're going to train a lot and not travel and play that much, you may not need as much flexibility from a schooling setup. Let's see. Uh, there was a question from Adam. What's up, buddy? So Adam says, why is Natalie Block, who is top five in the country, not homeschooled? I don't know. Maybe she's one of those kids who's super off the charts. Maybe she has one of those setups with her local district. Adam, I, I don't know her personally. Is she in the, in what age division is, is she? Let me know. Sometimes it's a little easier to get to the top in the, the younger division. And it becomes more difficult as the players get into the 14s, 16s, and 18s because it's more competitive. She's in the 16s. Yeah, I'm sorry. I don't know her personal story, but maybe it's you could look it up. You, you, have, to, you have to understand that also many parents just straight out lie about what their kids are doing. I'm not saying she's lying about going to regular school, but I know so many parents of top-ranked juniors who downplay what they do for training, you know, how much they train, and they also are going to upplay what they do for schooling, you know, so they can make it seem like they're really normal and they're not doing that much, make their kids seem more talented than they are. Oh, my kid only trains, you know, 10 hours a week and we go to normal school, blah, blah, blah. I've heard that a lot I've from many parents of top-ranked kids. So you have to also watch out on the truth meter for what, what parent, parents are very savvy and sort of they can be cagey, you know. And, and so I always take that with a grain of salt when parents tell me what their kids are doing. And they're usually going to underestimate. When they report it, they're going to underestimate what they're doing in terms of training, and they're going to overestimate the normal things like school. So, Adam, try... Try to watch out for that, you know. Three, if she trains three hours a day, that's, that's pretty good. You know, if it, she does it in one session and does she do fitness every day, that, that's good. 
if she gets fitness every day too, then she, then she has a chance to be uh, top in the country. If if she's doing that and she actually has a, a normal school day, like eight to three, then that's really impressive. It says a lot about her organization, and it probably also says a lot about her talent. She may be off the, one of those kids who's on the far end of the bell curve. And like I said, there are some kids like that who who can be the exception to the rule, but most of the normal normal gifted nationally ranked players they they don't have that ability to go to a normal school and and also break through into the top thirty. I, I usually say about thirty or forty. Like I said, if she's doing that, it's tremendous, and it, it typically means she's off very special talent. And she could also be a tremendous worker. You know, some kids will squeeze as much as they can out of a limited schedule. And that is that I give those kids lots of credit. But just in my experience, it, you're, you're not going to get, let's say, past the round of 32 at most super nationals without having some sort of modified schedule. Now, she may have a setup with her school or she may have a set of, I don't know where she goes to school. A lot of academies have private schools now. They have their own private schools that are very flexible. Some academies work with local school districts to bus the kids to the local school, and they get a modified, flexible schedule. So when parents say their kids are in normal school, that can have many different meanings nowadays. And normal could mean go to school 8 a.m. and get out at 12. And if you go to school 8 a.m., get out at 12, to me, that's that's a that's a modified schedule. Even though you might be in a normal, you might be in a, a normal school like a, a school system, you know. So that would give you a lot of time to train if you're out at noon or one. And some kids are lucky enough to have that set up with their school district, so they can do it for free, rather than pay some of these very expensive private schools that are 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 available now. I mentioned some of them earlier, right? See my buddy Bruce Gullickson's tuning in. What's up, Bruce? Hope you're well, buddy. Thanks for the wave. Appreciate you supporting the program. Got a lot of big names on the program tonight. Industry leaders. Nice. Guys, homeschooling. Yeah, that, that's that's about, that sums up how I feel. But if you have any other sort of uh, quick questions that I could get into, I want to leave time to talk about the kick serve and, and the technique of the kick serve, because that's probably its own show alone, but I wanted to have the academy and homeschool discussion. That's that's pretty much how I see it. If if you're determined to do traditional, really normal school, you know, eight to three, eight to four sometimes, and you're gonna you're gonna do three to four hours of homework a night. Like most of the kids here in New York, if they go to one of the elite private schools here in New York, they are just overwhelmed with hours and hours of homework in the evening. And so they're not getting enough sleep. They're not getting enough recovery. It's just a really shitty way to try to rise to the top of the country in the rankings. It just, it does, it's, it's a disaster. And the kids get so stressed out and they get injuries too because they're not sleeping enough. It's a pressure cooker here in New York. In some parts of the country, it's a little better. But I just think in, in any event, if, if you do a regular schedule, like let's say eight to three, there has to be, you have to streamline your homework load. If the homework load is hours and hours late into the evening, that's going to affect the results. It's going to affect the player's 
freshness when it comes weekend tournament time, it's going to affect the ranking and it, it may lead to burnout and injury. So the home workload is just as important as the the daily schedule, whether it's whether it's a modified schedule or, or a full schedule, that that type of thing. So I, I hope that helps you guys. I know a lot of parents watch the show. I know I have a lot a big following of parents with serious players, junior players, and I hope this discussion will help you guys sort of navigate the academy environment and the terrain of online schooling. I think again it's a very personal decision to do online school, do modified school, and it's a very personal decision to send your kid to an academy or not. There's a lot of details to to investigate, a lot of due diligence to be done. And I would say if you listen to this broadcast and you have a specific question relating to your family or your child, please just email me. I'm always available, chris at chrislewitt.com. You can WhatsApp me, 914-462-2912, or just search Chris Lewitt. I have many parents WhatsApping me, all sorts of stuff from all over the world, videos, and they want advice. You're, you're welcome to do that. Or you can just call or text me at the same number, 914-462-2912. That is such a common a dilemma, so many questions surrounding whether you should homeschool or traditional school or academy or private coaching journey. What there's, there's more than one way to get to the top. I would never say that you can only do it one way. Adam, Adam says himself that he has a, there's a player who made top five with a traditional school. I don't know if it's true or not, but it's, it's, it is possible with a very talented kid, but I think what I said previously about the the norm and the standard for the typical nationally ranked kid is that that's typically what happens. You you can get to the top ten in your section and you can get internationals. You can pass some rounds, uh, some early rounds at nationals. Maybe have a great nationals and make round of sixty four or round of thirty two with a traditional setup. But you're not going to get much farther than that unless you are. Basically, the way I see it is the kids who are doing that with a very traditional setup, they could be pros. They could be incredible pros, and they're actually underachieving with a very light schedule or heavy or heavy workload, depending on how how you describe it. They're basically pro talents who are going to end up playing Division One ball because they've been hindered. They've been slowed down by the weight of their 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 academic load or their academic schedule or their extracurricular activities. So sometimes, Adam, there, there are players like that. And usually they, they'll never be Grand Slam winners or things like that, but they'll end up being, maybe they'll end up going on the pro tour later on and make top 200 or top 300, which is quite impressive. But they, had, they originally had the talent. They, they had the talent to be a legitimate top 100 or maybe a Grand Slam contender. They were really, really special, and they just chose a different path. And I think that that's okay, because every kid has a different journey. Every family has a different journey. Not everyone is meant to go make their life all about tennis and pursue Grand Slams. There are different different journeys, different pathways for every player, and there are so many... Uh, there are so many differences in, 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 in every player has a different goal, different dream, and, and there's a different road for each one of them. 
playing college and having a normal high school, playing college and ending up 300 in the world might be right for one kid and homeschooling at seven years old and not even finishing high school and competing for grand slams and making a living as a true, as a true professional out there is, could be the path for another. It's, it's, it's all individual. And that's why I said, if you're not sure about your kid, please just contact me because I think it's a very specific the questions will be specific to you and your and your kid, and I would like to give you the best advice I can, and it has to be in a, in an individual way. You can only generically describe so many things about these topics. All right, so getting into the kick serve, guys. What do you think about the kick serve? I, I posted an article today on CTC just online to gauge what coaches thought, if they thought there was a back arch on the kick serve or not. And I, I will tell you guys that I think it's undeniable that there is a back arch. It's in the upper back, not the lower back. All the pro servers arch their back. So that's one thing that I would sort of hone in on right away. Almost all the pros arch their back, but they arch their upper back, which is called the, thorac the, par the thoracic spine. We call it T-spine in emergency medicine. And they also extend their C-spine, which is their cervical spine. So that's behind the neck. So you see an extension in the neck, and you see an extension behind the chest. And the reason why I think it's important to understand that is because we want to teach the kick serve in a very safe way to children. Or at least I do. That's a big priority for me. I teach a lot of kick serves, and I want it to be safe. So I had one coach online say something really stupid where he, this guy says, well, I teach a lot of kick serves and I just let the kids do what comes natural to them. I show them a few parameters and I let them do what's natural. And I said, well, that's not very bright because there are going to be some kids who what they're doing naturally could be really dangerous for their back. One of the parameters has to be the back and how much it extends, how much it bends, or how much you want to keep it straight. And... That, to me, is a big part of keeping, keeping the kids safe. And so I think it's important to understand that there is, there is a, a thoracic movement extension, there is cervical extension, but the lumbar spine should stay straight. So kind of like a, like, a, like a whip where the, the bottom part is firm and the upper part bends more. That's what happens on, on a pro kick serve and to a lesser extent with juniors. You have to be more cautious with juniors. Obviously, you don't want to hyperextend their back in any way. But there's also a link between the extension of the back and performance because if you can arch your upper back a little bit, the thoracic uh, extension that I'm describing and your cervical extension, the cervical extension is really important to get your face up to the bottom of the ball. And most kids who I coach, when I'm introducing the kick serve to them, they actually don't feel comfortable laying their neck back. They, they, it's a scary thing for a lot of kids. It feels really uncomfortable. It can be disorienting and, and it can be vertiginous where they start to feel like a vertigo. It's actually quite scary for some kids. Like they have an anxiety about leaning their head back. You want your face to be completely, uh, completely up to the ball. And a lot of kids will shield themselves from that. They won't let their 
their C-spine ex extend or even hyperextend. That part can, the neck is very, very flexible and it's perfectly safe to, to hyperextend your, uh, your neck and get your face looking up to the ball. It's not dangerous at all. Where you, ha where you don't want to hyperextend is in your lower back. So you don't want to push your, your belly button out. You don't want to thrust your hips out. And you certainly don't want to thrust them out at the wrong time. The wrong time is early in the motion. When, what I see, because I've worked with hundreds of kids on Kickser, I have a lot of experience with this. I think, I think maybe, maybe I've taught more Kickserves to young kids than, than, than anyone in, certainly anyone in my area, possibly in the country. And what I can tell you is that the most dangerous movement is when the player pushes or thrusts their hips outward and hyperextends their lower back in an abrupt, sharp way early in the motion. So that could be during the initial take back, like the first move, or it could be up into the power position. There shouldn't be a lot of extension during that time. Extension is when, the, when the, you get that concave shape in the back, uh, when you have a curve in the back, that's extension. Uh, flexion would be the other way. If you lean forward and bend over, that's flexion. If you, you lean back and get this concave shape, that's extension. So it's really important to understand those basic biomechanical terms and to understand what is safe for the body to do and what is not. And as I was saying, you never want to force or, or make any abrupt sharp movements in the extension especially in the early stages of the motion. Now, when does the thoracic extension and cervical extension happen? It happens during the acceleration phase, after the power position, when the racket drops and starts to... Yes, Charles Sai is making a, a comment about the back. So uh, when, when the racket drops and, and you start to accelerate upward to the ball, that's when the upper back starts to bend more and, and the neck is in that extended position looking up. And it's actually beneficial for the serve to get a good flex there. I use flex, uh, the you know, quote-unquote flex, just as a like, flexibility or it, it's technically extension. But when you bend there, just using the, or the common term flex, it's actually helping to drop the racket lower and 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 as you straighten the the spine and the the, the torso you, you get an enhancement to acceleration so that's why it's also important for the performance of the kick serve if you can get a deeper back scratch with thoracic extension and, and if you can get a better view of the ball with cervical extension you should do that obviously within within reason not not too extreme but that is part of the mechanics, or the biomechanics of the serve, and it helps to develop more, you get more acceleration that way, albeit a small amount of, of acceleration, you get more that way. So it's important to understand the performance benefits, it's important to know what's safe, and then you can start teaching the kick serve in a well-informed way, and I think in a, with, with healthy parameters and using solid sports science behind you, you know, keeping, like I say, I always like to teach in an evidence-based way. So what I'm describing is, is based on conversations I've had with 
biomechanists like Mark Kovacs, who is a, a leader in analysis of the biomechanics of the serve, for example, and other sports science leaders and, and you know, papers that I've read and, and, and research that I've, 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 um, I've done myself. So I, I trust those people and I feel that I can teach the, the kick serve in a, in a safe way with, with, some, with some extension in the upper, uh, in the T-spine and C-spine. So, and, and that's all I'm talking about with the back. I think I try to educate folks on that and I try to educate parents on that and, and players too. It's really important for players to understand that, even young players, because they have to know that they shouldn't throw out their, their belly button they shouldn't thrust their hips out. They shouldn't make any sharp movements early on in the motion. And they shouldn't toss too extreme to the left. So the toss is a big factor in the hyperextension of the back causing uh, a fracture. Like Charles made a... I think Charles is a doctor. I'm, I'm not sure. Are you an orthopedist, Charles? But he's talking about fractures in the L4 or L5, which is the lumbar part of the spine, the lower back, which is what we want to try to protect. You want to keep that, that lumbar spine secure and straight, and there shouldn't be any hyperextension down there. The bending should be happening up top, where the spine is more flexible, it's, more, it's, more, uh, it's, it's, safe. it's safe to do it that way. So that, that's basically how um, I see it, and... Yeah, Charles says he's an orthopedic radiologist, so he, he probably sees a lot of these things in the radiology lab. But you, you don't have to force anything extreme on a young kid. In my experience, kids as young as 8 or 9 can, can start to learn the fundamentals of a kick serve in a very safe and controlled way. Nothing should be extreme, nothing should be... As Tony Nadal says, bruscos, there should be no movimientos, bruscos, nothing really sharp or, or jagged in the movement. Everything should be smooth. And, and also when you're working with young kids, you're teaching them topspin or kick serve. A kick serve is a topspin serve. You want to teach it in a very uh, limited way. You don't want to do high quantity, high repetitions of kick serves with young kids. Tony Nadal likes to advise you only do 20 serves at a time, which I think is very, very conservative recommendation. But, you know, why not be safer than sorry? Don't do too many at a time. Mark Kovacs always told me that, you know, 60, 75, 60, 80 serves should be the max for, for one session. Now, these are safe, conservative estimates. You should definitely not take your 8 or 9-year-old and go out and serve like 250 kick serves. That would be irresponsible and potentially dangerous. You know, you have to do, you have to work on the kick serve in a very safe and careful way. Use your common sense. Some little kids are more developed than others and, and you can work a little more with them. And some, some are, are very young, physiologically, you know, physiologically young. Their, their, their bodies are not that developed muscularly and, or, or, or their, their joint and bone development is, is uh, not, not too far along, and, and I would be more cautious with those uh, with kids like that as well. So you, you have to sort of use some common sense and, and not to overdo it. And when you're working on a kick serve with little kids, for example, 
eight, nine, ten, you're not trying to get a huge kick. They're little kids. They're not going to produce a big, massive kick like you see on tour. You're just trying to get the mechanics ingrained, the basic sh form, the shape, so that they can, as they get older and they grow into the serve, they have it for life, and it's baked in really well to the muscle memory. And that's what I'm looking to do. I, also, tactically, they're not going to be able to kick it up high or get extreme ang angles typically because they're not that tall, and they're not going to be able to generate a tremendous amount of RPM. So I think it, it, it can be good to teach it, but also you have to understand what you're trying to get. You're trying to build the foundation of the form and get a good solid second serve going and maybe start to teach the kid about hitting angles and opening up the court with the serve. But it's going to be subtle and it's going to be, it's not going to be as explosive a weapon until the, the player is probably a teenager, you know, and they've, they've really grown into their body. So I hope that sort of gives you a perspective about how I'm teaching the kick and, and how to be safe. I think safety and, and the health of the player is critical. You, you, you don't want um, any kind of fracture, stress fracture. Any, those things can really take a long time to heal. can be months, and the player is going to lose momentum. Also, the shoulder is in a precarious position on the kick serve. You have to be very careful with the shoulder. Uh, the shoulder being pushed back to the left is, is weaker back there, and so you're doing a lot of tricep extending and a lot of shoulder accelerating from a, a position that's that's relatively weak biomechanically and you have to be very careful with the pushing the shoulder beyond its limits every child has a different limit you have to be very careful with with each child in front of you if they they show any any sort of uh, soreness or the shoulders starting to ache a little or you, they feel any twinge of pain you should not push that you should rest and try again another day like I said, Tony Nadal says 20 serves at a time. That's, that's very conservative, but better to be safe than sorry when working with little children. Be safe about it. Do a, a moderate the, the amount of work that you're doing. And it's better sometimes to rest and come back another day than to keep pushing, 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 pushing in the same session with a young kid with a, a young developing back and a young developing shoulder. Try to be try to use common sense and know your player well. Understand that the outcome for a young kid is gonna you're looking to get a, a moderate amount of topspin, a moderate amount of RPM. Teach them about angle and to ha develop a safe arcing second serve. And that's that's about it at eight, nine, or ten. And what you hope is that the motion is ingrained really well. So that as they get bigger and stronger, they're going to grow into this awesome kick serve that's going to end up, as they age, as they get stronger, that kick serve is going to be a tremendous weapon that bounces over people's head, heads, that's able to take their opponent, their rival into the side fence and open up the court. So that's, that's what you're hoping they're going to grow into. I much prefer to do it that way than to teach the, a very rudimentary serve, like just a flat serve to young kids and then sort of hope to teach them a spin serve when they're like 14 or 15. And that, that to me is sort of the traditional way to do it, which I disagree with. I think it's not as efficient to do it that way. I just think we should do it in a safe, efficient manner and not teach one technique and then try to add another motor program to it later on. Just teach, the, the, teach it the way, the, the form approximately the way it should be. You're not going to achieve all of the angles that you would with the an adult 
you know, you can't achieve all of the angles that an adult might hit, but you can get an approximation of what a pro serve looks like in a little kid. It's going to be a slower speed. It's going to be less extreme, less arching, less less extreme coiling. All, all everything's going to be slightly moderated because they're little kids, and the explosion is not going to be as much. So, yeah, you you get that baked in young, and then they grow into it. That's the way I like I like to build it. And in my experience, most most top coaches like to build sort of like a straight flat serve, maybe a slice serve, and then somewhere down the road, like 14, 15, they, they kind of add in the kick when, and they, they argue that it's safer that way. I'm not convinced it's safer to introduce a new motor program to a kid when they're going through their, their peak growth phase as a teenager. I, I think that has its own potential risks, and there's, I don't have any sports science to argue uh, one way or the other because no one has studied this, but I, I've sort of suggested that that, to me, could be as risky as, as starting it uh, young. They're both risky. I, w- I would rather not introduce a new technical movement to a kid who's going through a, a, a peak growth phase uh, at 15 or 16, for example, even though they are technically stronger. I prefer just to get it all worked out safely in a healthy way when the kid is young, you know, 8, 9, 10, 11, sometimes girls a little later than boys because the girls are not as strong as the boys typically at a young age. So you have to be careful with girls. A lot of young girls will slice. And another mention about girls and the kick serve, a lot of girls don't need to learn to kick serve. And I know that may be a controversial statement, but there are many examples of women on the professional tour who don't use a kick serve. A lot of time in the women's game, the kick serve, it doesn't jump enough and it just gets pounded. It just gets eaten for lunch. So that is another part of it. With women, with girls, you have to decide whether it's worth your time to even teach a kick serve. And I've had many cases where we decided, along with the parents, that we weren't going to do that. We were going to focus on a good slice that stays low and a good hard serve, and that was going to be the end of it, to save time and to to allow the player to be more effective tactically. With Sometimes with a petite player who doesn't have a lot of fast twitch, doesn't have a, a very speedy arm, the kick serve is a disaster, and it's a com- complete waste of time developmentally because it will just sit up, and the women now are so good at returning, they pounce on it and crush it's just kind of like a sitting duck. It's a little bunny rabbit, like Rick Macy says. It's just a little bunny rabbit waiting to get waiting to get hunted down. And so you have to sort of take the player individually in front of you and say, okay, would, would this player benefit from a kick serve? With boys, it's it's you never you never see a, a a man without a kick serve these days at the at high levels. So with boys, I'm a little more strict about. Or I almost always teach. I always teach one to boys. I guess theoretically, it's possible that a boy could be like small and benefit from a slice serve more than a kick. But just in practice, I've I've never done that before. You want to say hello, Sky? No, I just to the show. I need a charger. You need a charger. Yeah. You want to take my charger while I'm live? This is my live show. 
Okay, my, my daughter needs my charger, but fortunately I've got plenty of charge, so I'll stay with you guys a little longer. Yes, I'm doing my show from my kitchen, and my daughter is here. Thanks for, uh, you got to say at least hello now. <laughs> That's my teenage daughter. She's a little uh, teeny, she's a little teeny boppery right now. She gets a little grumpy sometimes, but she's a great teenage daughter, I'll tell you that. She's amazing. Okay, so where were we? Sort of talking about the safety. What other sort of pitfalls are there? I've written many articles about the Kickserve. I could post a few links to some of the articles that I've written. All of my articles are on prodigymaker.com, which is my blog site, and it's sort of the default host for all of my published articles. So I've written a lot about Kickserve. I have a really popular article that was published in Tennis Player Magazine, which is John Yandel's uh, like sort of technical magazine. And that one has been, I've gotten many, many people over the years tell me that that was very helpful for them in learning the kickser. But one of the things I talk about is sort of like the, the biggest pitfalls. So the back arch is one of them, the extreme lower back arch. Usually that relates to the toss. So the toss shouldn't be too extreme to the left. Typically the toss is between 12 and 1 o'clock. And a lot of kids try to toss it way to the left and then they, they throw their back out of alignment and they start hyperextending. So the toss and the back situation are interrelated. What else are some of the, the pitfalls that I've written about? Let's see, what I see on court. Uh, another one. Another one would be a lot of kids, for example, when they're doing a kick serve, it's not related to injury so much, but they open up their shoulders. It's important to stay sideways on a kick serve. I've done a lot of videos on this and, and um, as I said, published a lot on this. It's important to teach the kids to stay sideways longer. So, so if the shoulders open up, it, open up early, it usually becomes kind of a slice. So it's very counterintuitive for the players. The way that I build the kick with them Let's get into how I build it a little bit. I have them stay very, very closed with my system, my method. The kids stay very, very closed. They toss slightly to the left, not extreme to the left, but slightly to the left. I explain to them where they should have uh, an extension in their back, which is behind their neck or in their neck, behind their head, and also slightly behind their chest. I want them to open up their chest and let their head lay back so that they can look up and have a good perspective on the bottom of the ball. You get try to get a really good leg explosion. A lot of kids don't use their legs well in a kick serve. And then probably where the rubber meets the road, where you, where you have to work a lot on, is in what the wrist and the forearm do to get the brushing effect up over your head. That's really hard for, for most kids to get. Typically, when I work with young kids, that's probably the hardest thing. And we call that the spinny sound. In, in, my, in my academy and when I'm working with players, we try to get the spinny sound. Sounds kind of silly, but that's really what it's all about. If the player can move their hand and wrist and their forearm up to the elbow joint well in a loose way, in a, a fluid way across the, up and out across the ball from 7 to 2 o'clock on the ball, then they're able to get this sound. You can hear it. And if they, if they accelerate enough, you can get a, a really high-pitched scrapey sound or we call it a spinny sound or a, uh, what one of my students called it uh, mm, 
a stingy sound, a, a, what you call it, scrappy sound, scrapey sound, you know, whatever you want to call it, you can really hear it. And that to me is the holy grail for teaching a kickser. When I get a kid to make that sound of scraping the ball up above their head, I know we're going to get it. And, but unfortunately, I see so many kids who aren't getting that sound and they, their coaches tell them they're learning a kick serve. And I think that's a bunch of garbage that, because they come to me and they say, oh, I have, yeah, I have a kick serve. Uh, yeah, I'll show you. And it, it's not a kick serve. The ball's not even rotating or it's rotating so slowly that you can't hear the spinny sound. So for me, the obsession with a young kid is, is moving the hand, wrist and elbow, the lower arm in a way to get the spinny sound. That's the obsession. And once I have that, once I get my teeth into that, we can start to build all of the rest with the, the shoulders and, and the, the legs, and we can really start to, to build that kickser. But without that, that critical movement, I call it like the magic, the magic of the hand and the wrist. Without that movement brushing the ball, without the sound, we're not gonna get anywhere. So. There has to be a, a good amount of RPM. Even in a little kid, they can make that spinny sound. Like I said, it's not going to be a huge high bouncing kick, but it's going to be pretty good spin for a young young athlete. So that that's the first thing. And then I always try to get the arc. That's the other thing. How do, how you get the ball to go high above the net and then curve in like a big curve ball? We got to get the arc and then the direction. I always start kids on the ad court. And we work on the kick serve out wide on the ad court because that is the that is where the kick serve is at at home the most is out wide on the ad box. We want to try to pull the player off the court and the the returner off the court and open up the the space for a big forehand typically. So usually I teach those together like brother and sister kick serve and forehand. And I try to get even young kids thinking tactically and understanding that the serve should be used to open up space. The serve should often be used on an angle to pull your opponent out wide on the, in the beginning of a point. And in my experience, a lot of kids don't really think about the serve that way. They think about the serve as just getting it in, or they think about throwing a bomb up the middle, and they don't often think about making their opponent move. And that is one of the primary tactical That is that is the, uh, a tactical focus for me, and I think it should be for all my students that they that when they go up to step up on the line to serve, that they're thinking about opening the space. They're thinking about using angle and making their opponent move to the outside of the court, so that they can open space for their weapon, which is typically the forehand. Especially in Spain, the the forehand is the weapon. So, guys, thank you for all the waves. I see some new viewers on the program. I appreciate you tuning in live. So cool to have you. And I know that so many people are watching the show now on YouTube. Maybe I should switch over to YouTube Live or something. Or I know that many people are enjoying our new podcast. We're on iTunes now. Made my year. It's like my Christmas present came early. We finally got on iTunes. We got approved. And the show is blowing up on iTunes. You can just get it. It's so convenient now. Uh, you can just search it there. You can search Prodigy Maker Show or you can search Chris Lewitt. For some reason, the show is not popping up when you search tennis. That's a problem. I'm working on that. But you can find me now there and all of the shows are archived. And also, guys, just a quick note. I'm doing all the show notes now. We have This is our 25th episode. So I haven't 
had the time to put all the show notes yet, but going back through the first episode now, we have show notes for a lot of the the programs. And in the next few weeks, I will get all the show notes finished so that when you want to listen to the show, you can see what topics interest you and you can select different shows based on the notes. And so you know what I'm going to talk about. Right now, there's a bunch of episodes that don't have an explanation of what I'm what I'm talking about in the show. So I, I don't know how many people are going to click on those. It's sort of a mystery. They're mystery shows. So I'm working really hard on that. Uh, appreciate you guys. Appreciate your patience for that because I know a lot of people are listening to the podcast now. I get the statistics now on Podcast Connect uh, with iTunes and also through SoundCloud, which is our our podcast host, so to speak, or provider. And I know that, that we're getting a lot a lot of listens from really from around the world. So I'm, I'm really excited about the show growing and, and that way we can build our community. It's very exciting for me and to see this show growing in our second season now and our 25th episode. Very cool. So a few more, a little more on the Kickser. Getting back to how do you get that spinny sound, which I think is, is the obsession. I did a workshop for the USPTA, I did a conference where I did a whole presentation on the Kickstarter. It was so cool. We we got all the coaches and players and parents out on the court, and I took them through my method. It was really good, and it was fun to explain how I how I do it, how I build it, and I think it was really successful. But the grip for me is a big key. And what I do with my players is I use a very extreme backhand grip or as much as they can hold. So we try to go to um, at least an, uh, close to an eastern backhand or strong continental backhand. I try to move the grip more towards the one-handed backhand grip. And what that does is a couple things. It helps close the racket face up top so the players get a feeling of, of, spin, uh, of spin. They They automatically get a better spin sound from that. But also it puts the wrist in a, in a sort of a clamped down position. It's uncomfortable. And the only way the player can hit the ball so it goes over the net with the spinny sound is to release their wrist and to let their forearm from the elbow down to the wrist joint, to let that part loosen and snap, for lack of a better word, snap or flow across and up or up and out. So it's sort of a really good secret that I do. And it doesn't mean the grip is going to stay extreme backhand grip forever. It just means we use it as a learning tool. Because often I find that once kids learn how to release their lower arm from the elbow to the wrist joint, when they learn how to brush well, they often don't need that crutch. You know, They don't need that teaching aid anymore. And then they go back to a more normal continental grip and they do just fine. And then occasionally you get kids who are very uh, motorically gifted with their hand and they can use almost a, 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 a composite grip like a less, a, a less than a continental, even sometimes a forehand grip. I have some players who can hit a really good kick serve with, with a forehand grip, which I think is almost impossible. I can't believe it. But... It happens. Every, every wrist is different. Every kid has a different feel and ability. So you have to find the grip that matches up with the range of motion, the ROM that your player has, and their, their sort of kinesthetic awareness, how good they are with their hand and wrist, etc. Uh, but I found that with kids, all the kids who 
could never learn a kick serve. I had hundreds of kids like that come through my shop, my, my teaching court, and they, they just tried with a number of different coaches that, to learn a kick serve, and it's just kind of flat, and they, they haven't been able to get any rotation on the ball. First thing I usually go to is I, I force that grip over, and I teach them to, to relax and brush well with the hand, with the wrist, with the forearm, and that is the most amazing breakthrough. I've seen that breakthrough dozens and dozens of times with players because, like I said, once I can get the spinny sound, once I can get the, the scrapey sound, once, once that's there, I know I can build the kick serve well. It's going to start looking like a little pro kick serve in due time. But the breakthrough is always learning how to manipulate the wrist and the forearm, the hand, for lack of a better term, across the ball and when you can when you can get the kid to have the right tension in the arm the lower arm and get the proper brushing movement overhead magic starts to happen and they 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 start to feel it the the tension that they need the movement that they need and they start more maybe more importantly they 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 hear the evidence they they see the they they see the ball spinning but they can also hear it so they hear the breakthrough and then I explained to them that, okay, this is huge. We've got this, and we just got to add the other components, like the leg drive, staying sideways. We have to get the toss in the right relationship with the body. A big, big deal is where is the toss in relationship to the head and the shoulders. In my experience, most kids have a heck of a hard time knowing where to put the ball. A lot of kids toss the ball behind them, so that's back towards the back fence away from the baseline, that's a big mistake. It puts the shoulder in a weaker position. It can potentially cause injuries. I know that uh, John Yandel uh, and I, we wrote, we co-wrote a uh, piece about that where the toss moving backwards can put the shoulder in a more precarious position. So it's really important to get the toss above the head or slightly forward, a little bit to the left, but slightly forward so you can jump up into it and get a good thrust up into the ball. And most kids will toss it the wrong way. They'll toss it outside the court. The toss has to go in and to the left. I say like the horsey on the chessboard. You know, the knight, you got to go two, two spaces forward, one space left. That's the toss. You got to get the toss in and to the left so that you can thrust your body up into the ball. Because you should finish inside the court after a kick serve. It shouldn't, you shouldn't be falling backwards outside the court. A lot of kids lose their balance. They fall backwards. They have a contact point behind them. So not to the left, but behind them. And that can put the shoulder in a disadvantageous position, potential uh, injury uh, overload to the shoulder, injury risk. And also, it's just going to create a slower serve. If you want to get more power, pace on your kick serve, you got to toss it slightly forward so you can get your body thrusting up into the ball. And it's, it's tricky to get that body position in relationship to the ball. You have to, it takes time and you have to sort of show a player. Sometimes when they're little, I can just take the ball and hover it over them because I'm tall. And I can do it that way. If the player's bigger, you, might, you could even get up on a chair and help them find the right place. Another thing that I do with, with the kick service, I do a lot of physical manipulation. When I take a player and I'm teaching them the kick serve, I take their arm through the movement that I want, the upward brushing movement. I manipulate their wrist and forearm a lot to get the right 
amount of tension. It should be pretty loose. And I try to get their wrists fanning outward in the right movement. And I think that's critical. Never can I teach it. Never do I think teaching a kick serve uh, works just from ver verbal cues or even visual cues like demonstration. I actually don't demonstrate too much. I, I demonstrate some movements. I actually have a very good kick serve. It's one of my favorite serves uh, when I got out on the, the future circuit. And I didn't use it much in college. I, I learned a good kick serve later. And so it's my favorite serve uh, playing pro circuit. I, use, I, I love kicking it up and setting up my forehand. So I actually have a good demo for the kick serve. Some coaches don't have a good demo. I have a good demo for it, but I actually don't demo it that much because I believe so strong in the physical manipulation of a player's body. A lot of times I relate that type of coaching to martial arts coaching, which is very hands-on. So I love when coaches can uh, touch a player and manipulate their, their, their bodies through the move, to, to create the movement that they want so that they can feel it kinesthetically. I think that's really, really important. So those are some keys to the kick. I think covered a lot of good stuff there. If you guys have specific questions about the kick, again, best to reach out to me. If you have a player learning the kick, why not just send me their videos and I can give you like some very specific advice that way rather than uh, this format is probably not the best for, for getting individual help. You've you got to send me a video so I can look at it. So, you, you know, as I mentioned, I get a lot of videos through WhatsApp or you can send it through my email or however you want to do it. You can text me videos if you're in the U.S. here. Uh, people love WhatsApp. WhatsApp's a great way to share videos and review videos. So I have a lot of my international students and families. They send me videos through WhatsApp to review. That's probably the best way to take the next step forward. If you're, you have a, if you're working on your own kick or you have a, a player, a kid, or your own, your own child or, or, or a student that you're working on, send me the video so I can quickly assess it. It won't take me long. Take me just, you know... I, I, I work with kick serves all the time and I, I'll, I'll see it right away, what's missing, what, what, what needs to be adjusted. But those are, those are sort of the, the big ticket items for the kick serve and, and also some advice about how I actually build it. I would say that it's the most difficult shot in tennis. It's the shot that my, my players struggle with the most. Players who come to see me, they struggle with the most. I've had many experiences with adults who tried to learn a kick serve since they were young and just couldn't get it and they couldn't figure it out. That was my own story. I tried to learn a kick serve for years as a teenager and I had many nice coaches who tried to help me and they sort of told me the basics that you see in all the textbooks and then if you go to like USPTA workshop or, or a PTR symposium and take a course you see sort of a lot of the basics you know toss to the left brush up and out seven to two on the ball but that never it never clicked the serve for me it wasn't until I studied with my greatest coach and mentor Gilad Bloom later on as I, when I was older that that I finally was able to unlock the kick serve and, and I, I practiced I tried so hard when I was a junior I just could never get it to really jump the way I wanted so I ended up slicing a lot in college which maybe not ideal but I wish I had maybe learned the kick serve sooner but anyway 
it, it was it was my personal journey that I, I found the kicks are so difficult to learn for myself. It was like a personal mission of mine to develop a good kick serve just to master this to master this serve that was like a 400 pound gorilla in the room it was a it's driving me crazy like I couldn't I couldn't master this this advanced skill and I finally did it in my 20s I finally mastered the service so happy that I I finally accomplished this skill and and then it, obviously I wanted to share it with my students and I wanted to share it with others so I started writing about it and producing videos and things like that and I think over the years I've just developed a very simple and efficient method and most of what I described to you in the show um, so far. So guys, kick serve, hardest shot in the game. If you need help, just reach out to me. I'm helping everyone now. Uh, send me your videos. Let me know what's, what's the sticking point for you. Is it maybe the toss location or getting the RPM, getting it to jump up? Is it, you know, are you worried about the safety? So it's really important. Safety is the first topic that I discussed, the back, right, and the shoulder. So safety is everything. And once you know you're doing uh, the serve in a safe way, you can start to make uh, little adjustments to try to get the performance better. Bottom line is the serve should be jumping up over your opponent's shoulders. If your kick serve is just sort of in the strike zone of your opponent, it's not going to work. And that's why a lot of female players sometimes ditch it they say, oh, I'm not going to do a kick serve because uh, it just doesn't work for me. It just sits up and gets killed. So you have to make that assessment as well. That's why I'll just maybe uh, finish on, on this note of caution to many adults. For many adults, learning a kick serve is, is, is not worthwhile. Because if you don't have enough power in your shoulder, even if you learn it correctly, like I can teach you, I can teach anyone that kicker, but is it really going to jump up and out of someone's strike zone? Is it going to be difficult to return? Because if I teach you the beautiful motion and you get the kicker going, but it doesn't have enough pace or RPM to disturb your rival, your re the returner, then what's the point? It's not going to work tactically. So I like to remind folks that Hey, you might want to learn a kick serve, but if you don't have enough power in your shoulder, if you don't have enough, if you can't generate enough energy from your body to create enough spin to make it jump up, significantly, significantly jump so it bothers your opponent, then you're just going to end up serving up a meatball that's going to get eaten for dinner. And why would you want to spend six months or a year developing a serve that just sits up for your opponent? This is the situation for most club players, for most adults, and especially for most women. And I don't mean to say that in a sexist way. It's just a fact. Most women don't create a lot of power and uh, their shoulders don't produce as much force as, as uh, their male counterparts. And women, women tr especially older women, trying to hit a kick serve, is, is, you can learn the mechanical details, you can learn the form, but the serve's not going to be effective tactically. That's why it's hilarious and a little sad when I see so many online coaches selling kick serve courses to club players, which is a joke and really is a bit irresponsible. Not only are those coaches putting those players at risk of injury, but they're completely wasting their development time because 
those older adults are not going to get a lot of tactical benefit from learning a kick serve. They're much better off hitting a slice that stays low. That's the bottom line. So sorry to burst your balloon if you're like older and you're super pumped about learning a kick serve and wanting to do it since you were a kid. I mean, if you have that dream, okay, I'll help you with that. But you got to understand that for most folks, if you don't have a lot of power in your upper body or just in general, your body's not producing enough force, the kicker is just going to sit there like a meatball and it's going to get eaten, you know, for a meal and you'd be better off spending your time learning a, a kick most likely. So I know that some folks have that, that quest to, to master. I, I was on that quest too, but I have a pretty powerful shoulder. So when I hit a kicker, it, it, it's, it's good, you know, it jumps. I don't know if that's your particular situation. And the same with your kids, with your, with your students. It, like I said, if you have a kid who's not very powerful, who is petite, or just doesn't have a lot of juice in the arm, they really would probably benefit a lot more from spending time mastering a good flat serve that stays low and a good slice serve that stays low. It's going to be much better for them tactically. All right, I think Charles has a parting question. Thank you for joining the program, Charles. I hope you guys are doing well. Say hi to the kids for me. He says, is it possible to hit a good kick flat and slice with a single toss position for disguise? Okay, great. Yeah, that's a great question. I'm sorry I didn't touch on that. But the disguise is usually in the second serve. So you, you toss to the left, slightly left for the second serve and slightly closer to the baseline, but still inside the baseline for the second serve. It's a great question. I get this question all the time. And for the first serve, the toss is more forward, so more into the court, and slightly more between 12 and 1. So there is a disparity. There's a differentiation that occurs. Even for most pros, the, there's a myth that there's a one universal toss that the pros all use. That is not true. Is it the case that some pros keep their toss at 12 o'clock in terms of left and right? Yes, some pros do disguise their serve first and second that way, but in my experience and from studying a lot of high-speed video and working with people like John Yandel, who's maybe studied more high-speed video than anyone in the world, I, I, would, I would say that most pros have a differentiation in their toss. The, the toss goes more to the left for the kicker versus the, the first serve. And also the toss, for, for no matter what, the toss, even if it's centralized at 12 o'clock on a kick serve, even for the players who disguise it that way, it's going to be closer to the player so that, so that they can get under it. In other words, it's never going to be in the same exact lo location in terms of left and right and front and back. There's always going to be, it's always going to be a little closer so that the player can get underneath and push up under, from under the ball and create top spin. And the first serve toss is always going to be more forward. Whether they're disguised at 12 o'clock or not, from the rival's perspective, from the returner's perspective, they won't be able to tell that subtle difference. But just from a pure biomechanical discussion, the toss is always going to vary. You're never going to have the same exact toss for the kick serve as you are for the first serve. So it's, there's kind of a myth. That is a pretty common myth in coaching circles, in tennis development, that you toss the same way. And... The fact is that most pros have a slightly left toss because why? They're trying to get more action. 
they're trying to get more angle and they're trying to get more spin on the ball. And when you toss more left, you get a greater thoracic extension. You, you're able to reach down deeper into your back scratch and, and generate more acceleration going up into the ball. And you're also, geometrically speaking, able to get more angle out wide. So that's why you see a lot of clay court players and a lot of players who are really dedicated to their kick serve and using their kick serve as a weapon. That's why they oftentimes toss more to the left. They don't even care if you know it's coming because they're, what they're after is angle and extreme spin. There are many examples of servers like that. Even Federer tosses more to the left for his kicker. So those guys are giving up some disguise in order to get a little bit better performance out of the kick serve, you know, more RPM, more angle. So that's sort of how I see it, Charles. I hope that helps. One thing you can do is, let's say you do have a differentiated toss uh, in terms of left and right, like maybe your kick serve toss goes to 11 and your first serve toss goes to 12. When you toss to 11, you can still disguise where that serve is going. And I work on that all the time. I call it the surprise serve. I stole that term from Jeff Tarango, who I heard use, he used that term at a conference, that a workshop that I was attending. I was like, oh, that's a great term. I'm going to use that all the time. Surprise serve. Surprise serve is when you toss to the left for your kicker, but you shoot it up the middle on the ad court, or you toss to the left for your kicker, and you shoot it out wide on the deuce court. Because typically, the, the kick serve goes T on the deuce, and the kick serve goes out wide on the ad. So the surprise serve is when you mix up the kicker, but the toss stays the same. The toss is kind of 11, 11, 30. So the opponent is, knows it's going to be a kick, but they don't know where the kick's going to go. And that's typically how you would disguise the kick serve. All right, hope that helps, guys. It was a really cool show. There was a lot, of, a lot to discuss. Academies, homeschooling, kick serve. I hope I did those topics justice. I knew it was going to be a difficult show because those topics probably demand their own show by themselves and so I was tackling a lot but I, I wanted to give you guys my best I hope we covered those topics in in depth enough and if I didn't please you know you can email me or or get in touch with me through whatsapp or my cell and I can try to get into more detail with you guys so thank you so much for tuning in it was a really cool show interesting topics I enjoyed the questions and the participation. I love getting your waves. It was great to see old friends on the show. We also had some big names tuning in with the wave, with waves. I appreciate that. Guys, if you could give me a thumbs up. If you could subscribe to my iTunes podcast, I'm really trying to beef up our subs on that. Appreciate it. Subscribe, then you'll get notified of when the new shows are posted. We'll try to post a new show sometime tomorrow on iTunes. You can subscribe to the show on our YouTube channel too. If you prefer watching the show, you can get the show on our YouTube channel. So there's lots of ways to enjoy the show now. And I think everyone's taking advantage of that. I'm so excited that everyone can get the show now. Some of my students were telling me that their dads are listening to the show all the time in the car. And it's driving them crazy. Like they have my voice in their head all the time. So sorry guys, but I guess now that... The show's available everywhere. My voice is going to be reverberating through all of my students' brains all the time. That's probably a good thing for them. Anyway, guys, have a great night. God bless, and I'll see you on the next program.
We hope you enjoyed the program. Please give us a five-star review on iTunes and recommend the show to your friends. We greatly appreciate your likes and shares. Thank you for your support of the show and for helping us grow our audience. If you would like to train with Chris, please visit chrislewitt.com for more info. You can also join Chris's online school, clta.teachable.com, and follow his blog at prodigymaker.com. A reminder that all show archives can be found at youtube.com forward slash chrislewitt, and the show can be watched live on Facebook. Just search Chris Lewitt on Facebook to join the show. Thanks for listening and see you next time. Vamos!